are back after a couple of games against the Flames. Uh, some serious stuff going on in the net, and, and we're excited to have a guest here. Ian Tullock joins us, and uh, Ian is with uh, Maple Leafs Hot Stove. You're doing the, um, the report cards this year. What would you say is your grade for Freddie Anderson's season? Because it's beginning to look like it, it might be coming close to an end uh, with the Leafs here. We're really getting off to a positive here right off the bat. This is, <laughs> happy to join the show. Yeah. Happy to help out my buddy Nick Richard here off on his podcast. He just start me off with Frederick Anderson talk. Yeah, no, this season and last season, it's just not gone his way clearly. And it's kind of sad because if you look at his first couple seasons as a Maple Leaf, he just gave them consistent goaltending night in and night out. I remember there were a few months of stretches over the last few years where the team actually didn't play very well, and Frederick Anderson who was, was the one who was dragging them to positive results. And now it's kind of the other way around, where the team has been performing really well at 5-on-5, five five, and he hasn't been able to give them a save the past month. So Jack Campbell's come in recently, and we'll see if he's able to take the net moving forward. I know with Jack Campbell, one of the big things with him is that whenever he's been tr- uh, given a starter's load in the past... He hasn't been able to stay, stay healthy long enough to actually survive that as a from going from a backup to a starter's workload. So I know that's a big component there. But you know, with Frederick Anderson, I, I usually do a scale from one to five when I'm doing my post game report cards. So on a one to five scale, I think you got to give Anderson a one this year. I mean, maybe two if you're being generous. Yeah, I, I think uh, you'd you'd have to be awfully generous to maybe go with the two. Uh, Ian, we appreciate you. You'd, Joining the pod, um, big fan of your work. Uh, I'm a, I'm a Leafs geeks OG. Like I, I used to listen to that all the time. And um, oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, we, we're we're excited to have you on. Um, and you know, you, you mentioned Campbell. Obviously, he had a great performance in the second game after Freddie just got completely shelled um, against the Flames there on Friday night. And obviously, you know, Campbell's going to be the guy. You mentioned the injury thing, like that. That's a, a concern, but. Um, Boy, he, he has looked so good, and uh, guys, feel feel free to jump in here, but um, I mean, I, I guess that's kind of the thing. Like, you feel super comfortable when he's in there until uh, all of a sudden, you know, the injury alert comes out, and, and it's it's kind of been the consistent theme, even, even this season, but also kind of for his larger career, right? Yeah, well, I talked about it on the last episode a little bit, just like how frustrating the entire Campbell it- injury situation must have been for the organization just because of how important it was to get a look at him this year and that would have been even if Freddie was playing well they would have wanted to get a look at Campbell for the future and just even to know what they have behind Freddie but now it's all that much more important with you know Freddie kind of carrying his struggles over from last season we didn't think that he played all that well last season and I I would argue that it's been even worse this season and if you look at the numbers the numbers are even worse than they were last season and it, it's only been four games of Campbell but he's only let in four goals too and we definitely have to see it over a larger sample size and I think we just kind of have to hope that he can kind of shake these injury troubles and stay in the net for a long time I think he's going to be given a, a real good run to show that he can be the guy to lead them into the playoffs here yeah I think that's that's the important part at the end is, is that I I think he's actually probably got a bit of leash too like I don't think this is going to be if he goes out next game and puts up like a 905 or something I I don't know if they're going to go right back to Freddie like I think it's swung that far that he has the net for for probably a few games too and I was looking at this earlier like it just with the pandemic and like the 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 stop of the season and then the the kind of like the bubble and and this season starting like it feels like he's been a leaf forever he's played 10 games as a leaf like I couldn't I thought it was definitely more than that 
but I mean, he's only done well as a Leaf. Like he, I, he hasn't had very many, if any. Well, I can't remember much about last year, but didn't that, <laughs> didn't seem like there was a lot of like bad games. He had great numbers. Um, I'm excited to see what he does with it. He's definitely, you know, it feels weird to say that he's earned it in four games, but. You know, he has. He's been by far the best goaltender. Has he earned it as much as Fred has also kind of lost it too, right? Yeah, it's 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 absolutely a, a sum of those two things. What's crazy about Campbell is that if you look at his save percentage in his NHL career, in 68 career games at the NHL level, he's a 919 goaltender, which is very good, obviously. It's not the largest sample. You like to have more than 100 starts on a goalie before you really know what they are. But he's one of those guys who was in the AHL for such a long time after being uh, 11th overall pick for the Dallas Stars. With goaltenders, it's one of those things where you, you talk about these guys who have pedigree and, oh, yeah, athletic, long guy, goaltending gurus really believe in this player. And then it's someone like Jonathan Bernier, and you're wondering, okay, maybe this isn't the greatest assessment here. But when it's a Jack Campbell, and you're starting to see him coming into his own here these last couple of years, his last year with LA uh, didn't go as great in 1920. He had 900 save percentage in 20 games. But the year before that, he had 928 and 31 starts with the LA Kings. So you're looking at a guy here who, as a starter, has looked pretty good. But with goaltending, we like to joke in the stats community that these guys are voodoo. It's the hardest position to predict moving forward. If you're trying to guess what a goaltender save percentage is going to be tomorrow night good luck and this is why betting on hockey is such a nightmare for guys like Dom Lucision because <laughs> the the goaltending component is the most difficult part to project it's also the most important part to winning and that's why the sport is so goddamn random so with Jack Campbell I mean what are you guys thinking based on what he's been throughout his career kind of what he's been in the last couple years with goaltenders it's always tricky trying to evaluate them but I'm wondering if in his late 20s here he's actually started to find his game a bit it's not like it would, he wouldn't be the only goalie that's that's done that lately too. Like with the Kemper, you know, like that that kind of thing. Like it doesn't yeah. seem like it's crazy to think that a twenty nine year old or twenty eight when he came to the Leafs kind of finds his game. And and uh, even you know there, there's plenty of examples of that happening in in the past. Like guys bouncing around and you know going up and down from in the AHL to the NHL and and you know spot starting here and there and backing up a little bit. Like it's not out of the realm of possibility, but it does feel premature to get too excited about it over just simply because of the fact that he's played 10 games with us but again there isn't like there's a, a better option staring us in the face right now and all he's done is win so um yeah it, uh, even if he what like what would be realistically considered good for the rest of the year this team doesn't need 965 goaltending to win if he if no. he settles somewhere in between 912 to 915 i think we're we're pretty pretty happy i think he could live with league average goaltending honestly with this roster yeah absolutely there was those uh, i don't know if you you guys saw the the charts from like um it, whatever the, you know tracking i think it was a expected goals chart for both games against calgary and like the way that you could literally just see how the Leafs were battling uphill all night in that first game because Fred just let one in every time. Uh, and, and it was like, you know, they, they would get one back and then it, it was it was miserable. And it's like you don't need, uh, you know, a superstar. You just need a guy who is not going to completely deflate you. And it's and it is so like curious because obviously you know we, we've seen deflating goals from Fred but like this is a, a nightmare um, you know we're used to the bad starts we kind of thought that he, he had his bad start and, and he started to level out a bit and it's just been so bad and I mean we don't have official word yet but um, 
we have to think injury plays a part in this because um, you know we we saw that uh, they made a move to bring Ian Scott up to the the taxi squad. There have been some you know whisperings that maybe Fred ends up on, on the LTIR or something, or or at least is going to be sidelined for a bit with with an injury. So um, you know w- w- th- this is far from over, right? Because we talked about. Campbell's injury issues, Freddie's dealing with injury issues and, and the awful season, like we're far from out of the woods with this, but yeah, hopefully Campbell can kind of do something to, 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 and again, doesn't really need to do a lot to show that he's the guy. He just has to show that he's not, not the guy, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think Campbell's like ready for this this opportunity. I read an interview with him earlier today uh, in the Athletic. I think it was Jonas Siegel did it. And he was kind of talking about how you know realizing that not everyone takes the same journey to get to to this level, right? And he's recognized that just because things haven't gone his way through the early part of his career doesn't mean that he can't make good on this opportunity now. And on the flip side, it seems like. Freddie's head is that might be as much of a problem as whatever physical ailment he's dealing with right now because he doesn't look confident or sure of himself at all like for such a big goalie we talked about this a little bit off air like he's making himself look so small he's losing his net he just doesn't look like he has it at all right now and maybe there'll be something to be said for him fighting to get his job back rather than fighting not to lose it and I think what Cam said too about it makes it even more frustrating that you don't need a world beater in there. Like you just need him to be average and he can't do that. I think that's what's what has made it, you know, move from it's disappointing that Freddie's playing this way to like him drawing a lot of ire from the fan base. Like he people have soured on him online. Like pitchforks are out. And and I, I yeah. think it is just because of the fact that you just you didn't need him to put up a Vesna quality season. You just needed him to not give you those back backbreakers that he's just prone to doing almost every game. I wonder how much of this is after tweaking his groin last season. If we were to just look at save uh, save percentage for Frederick Anderson before the groin injury as a Maple Leaf and then after the groin injury, now at the same time, if you were doing that, you'd be looking at Frederick Anderson at 30 years old and Frederick Anderson before he was 30 years old. And I think if you did that with any player, you'd see a massive difference in performance. That's just the nature of when players age and if a player picks up an injury, it's going to impact their performance. With Frederick Anderson, if we're talking about a guy now who's in his 30s, who has a history of injuries now, which isn't a good thing, obviously, for a starting goaltender. This is where you realize, crap, I don't think this is someone we're going to be re-signing long-term. If he had a monster season this year and a monster season last year, maybe that's something that makes you think about re-signing him. But it's reached the point where I think all Leafs fans recognize that this is going to be his last year in Toronto. And what's frustrating is that he's not even playing well during this season. So I think it's very clearly going to be his last season at this point. Do you think there's any chance that he can claim the net back this season that after Jack Campbell maybe goes through a couple duds here and there, Anderson comes back in, has a few strong starts in a row, and starts to get some of his mojo back? Because I think that's kind of, if you're Frederick Anderson, that's what you have to be hoping for at this point. Yeah, I I think, um, you know, that's a good point, Ian, because, like, 
it, you know, I, I wanted to talk a bit about Freddie's legacy. And I, I think that's kind of like my best hope for him now is that he doesn't go out like this because like it was so bad. Keith, you talked about like how, how the, you know, the, the knives are out for him. And, and it's it's hard to watch because of like, you know, he if it almost feels like he's going to leave and, and he's going to be remembered for being worse than he was like unfairly bad because of, you know, the circumstances, you know, w- with how strong the team was and, and when the bottom kind of fell out here for him. But um I, I I don't know. I I guess it's um it, it would be nice to to obviously see him like put it together and and win the playoff round and get the monkey off the back because like I I think that's I mean we all want to see the team win around but I think it would be nice to to see Freddie do it but um yeah I mean the the lingering injury the the poor play like the best thing might be for him to 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 shut down here for a few weeks get the confidence back a little bit uh heal up and you know try to rest up for that playoff run and kind of get kind of make him like our Kucherov (laughs) (laughs) in a similar vein do you think they should do something similar with Matthews because I know that's been a concern I've heard a lot of people bring up that if this wrist isn't a hundred percent is it better for him to just play with it or for him to pick up some rest for a couple weeks yeah, I, I I mean, that one's... Yeah, that's an interesting one. We talked about that a little bit in the last pod, and, and it's like, it, 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 it almost seems like, um, you know, what we kind of said was, like, they're saying that, you know, it, he can keep playing through it and it'll continue to heal or whatever, but it, it almost feels more like um, it's not going to get any better until we work on it in the off season. so might as well kind of leave him in. And, and I, I mean, you got to think that, like, some rest would help um, come playoff time, but maybe it's a structural thing and, and they don't think it's going to be enough of a, a benefit, I guess, to, to rest him. But um, I don't know. That, that one's... He's very clearly like, oh, he's getting better somewhat because he's definitely leaning on it a lot more. Like He's shooting more in the last couple games. Like those first few games, he, you know, he was passing a lot and, and, and given, I mean, obviously they moved him in the, in the, on the power play and everything. So... I think there's a, at least a little bit of evidence that rest has helped him, but yeah, Cam, like you said, maybe it maybe it is a kind of terminal thing where it doesn't get you know this is as good as he's going to get until their surgery, and you know it's not necessarily going to get any worse. So they've they've made that decision. I don't I don't I feel like if there's you know with the sports science that the Leafs have, I'm sure that this is being well thought out, but it it does feel like something that could go sideways quickly if it, you know, but I, I don't know. It, it seems to be, seems to be getting better, but it's still a concern in the back of my mind for sure. One thing you brought up there is that he's looking to shoot a bit more often, which is something that I've noticed as well. If you looked at those first couple games when he was playing with the injury, he'd be in a prime shooting position in the middle of the slot and he'd be passing it out to Joe Thornton or Mitch Marner. And you're just thinking, wait, or Jake Muzzin, you're Austin Matthews. <laughs> you fire that puck 10 times out of 10, but when you're not feeling comfortable in your wrist shot, you're going to make a different play. I think if you look at his stick handling now, it looks a bit tighter now. If you're just looking at his handle, it looks a bit better to me in his last couple games than it did earlier on. But it doesn't look like prime Austin Matthews. And I think that's your biggest concern is when does he start to look like the player who was a legitimate heart candidate to start the season? Because he's hit a few posts in recent games, so he could easily have a few goals here and there. But I'm not a guy who focuses entirely on the result. I care more about the process. And are we seeing a guy who's dominant in the 200 feet of the ice that he was earlier in the season? No. Is he getting closer? 
Yes, but I'm still not seeing the dominant Austin Matthews that we saw earlier in the season. I think that's a big concern long term because you need him to be that if you're going to be a legitimate Stanley Cup contender. Yeah, I think if anything, maybe he's been a little bit tentative, even if that injury is sort of eating away at his subconscious a little bit. Um, but to your guys' point, it definitely looks different the last couple of games. They've moved him back to his normal spot on the power play. I've seen him uncork a couple of one-timers. He's starting to look a little frustrated and angry. We, we saw maybe the most enc- uh, encouraging sign about how his wrist is feeling is the, the way he snapped that stick on the bench the other night using that top hand. He didn't look tentative doing I, that. I think um, that the most encouraging part, Nick, was when he um, did the Danny Heatley wind-up when he was three feet away from Mitch Marner in the high <laughs> slot. <laughs> the uh, the Danny superstar. Yeah, that was in the rafters. <laughs> Yeah, so I think he's definitely coming around. Um, but like Ian said, if this team's going to go anywhere, they, they he, Matthews has got to be that dominant force that was looking like a heart candidate early in the season. And I, I think that he's going to get somewhere close to that, even if the wrist doesn't get to 100% before the season's out. To steer it back to, to Anderson for a minute, Nick, I'm curious about your take on that. You know, if you see, as the guy who, you know, I watched the Eliminator with last <laughs> season and was ready to literally pack the guy off yourself, yeah. um, what do you think about, you know, the idea of Freddie coming back and, and maybe redeeming himself with some kind of a run here before he ultimately bids adieu? Well, out of the three of us here on the show, or the regulars on this show, I've definitely been the one who's been hardest on Anderson, I would say. But one thing I do want to say about Freddie's legacy as a Leaf is maybe he hasn't been able to get it done and get us over that hump, but I don't think it can be overstated just how important those early years of having that consistent, solid Freddie Anderson were to this team during the rebuild. Just knowing that that spot was taken care of and that Anderson was going to give these young guys a chance to learn how to win during the regular season at least and just kind of, you know, help propel through that that early stage of the rebuild where this team was trying to find itself again. And it just kind of added a bit of stability to, to an organization that didn't really have any for a long time. Um, it, it is kind of sad to see the way it's gone because of all of that. And just how important he was to this team for so long. But at some point, you just need the results. And he has it's been going on two full seasons now where he hasn't given the team the results they need. And he's going to get a chance to, to win the job back. Like, Campbell's not going to sustain the 965 or whatever it is that he's got right now. You don't think? It, uh, it's it's unlikely at best, I would say, Ian. <laughs> uh, but even... If Campbell doesn't really, you know, totally falter or stumble to the point where they have to look to Fred full time again, they're going to need two goaltenders at, for the rest of this season. At, at some point, they like Campbell's not going to play every game, and even once it gets to the playoffs, I think that there's a good chance they might need both guys if they go on a deep run. Fun too. fact about Frederick Anderson: from 2016 to 2019, he played 66 games, 66 games, and then 60 in the regular season. If you sort by shots against in all situations, he had the most shots against him in that time span. The next closest goalie was Connor Hellebuck, who gave up 
what was it, over 500 uh, fewer shots against on Connor Hellebuck than there were on Anderson, who led the league in shots against. So when I think of workload, when I think of how many times you're dropping down into the butterfly, you know, putting stress on your groin, groin stress on your knees, it reminds me of when you give a running back 300 or 400 carries in the NFL, and they're awesome for that season, but then you look at any season afterwards, it's just so hard for them to maintain that level of performance. I'm wondering how much stress has been on this guy's body over the last few years, just when you consider how many starts he was getting, and not just that, but the fact that the Leafs were giving up among the highest shot totals in the league those seasons. There's, it's, he's been through so much the last few years. I'm not sure if it's fair to expect him to be as good now as he was three or four years ago. Yeah, and you know, Ian, you mentioned the groin earlier, and, and you know, I, I was kind of thinking about like how god awful his numbers are in the penalty kill this year, and you know, I was thinking about that. And you mentioned the groin. I kind of wonder if if it's like a specifically related thing where, especially on the PK, you're you're kind of engaging that right. You're like you're in your stance the whole time. And maybe like obviously you feel like those numbers are going to rebound a little bit, but maybe it is, you know, part of the specific, you know, injury that he's been dealing with. And and yeah, I mean, it's it's such a tough legacy because I I think that we'll look a little kinder on him after, you know, a few seasons, a little bit of a little bit of time and space. But, um, you know, I think it's worth remembering that, like, as as much as, you know, he might have let us down in, in the last couple of playoff runs, like. 2017 especially we don't get to the playoffs uh if not for freddie anderson right so it's um it's it's a it's a complicated legacy and i do hope that you know he'll, he'll get a chance to to kind of um heal up a bit and and maybe have one nice last little run with the Leafs in the playoffs, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, you look at the last few Stanley Cup teams who have actually made it to the final, a lot of the times they have to play both of their goalies at some point. You know, one of the goalies has a rough night, you throw in your backup for the uh, game three, they play well, and then you throw in your starter again for game four and you win the series. It's one of those weird things in sports where, for whatever reason, in hockey now, you want to have two goalies. In the past, you used to be able to get away with Martin Broder starting 77 games of the season and Scott Clemenson just filling up the water bottles in the background. That's just kind of his role. But with Frederick Anderson now, maybe he's the backup for Jack Campbell going into the playoffs. And maybe he does need to give them a big time start in one of these playoff games. It wouldn't shock me if by the end of this year, and I'm including the playoffs, that you need both Frederick Anderson and Jack Campbell to win a couple playoff rounds. All right, so we've talked enough about goaltending in the last couple of weeks and now off the top of this show. So there's something I really wanted to ask Ian about. As someone who's kind of made a name for yourself in the stats world, what was your take at the time on the Simmons signing? Because I know it was met with a lot of uh, skepticism from some of the more statistically inclined people among us. Um, And how have you felt about what he's brought to this team, like the things you can quantify versus maybe some of that energy and leadership that is more difficult to yeah, quantify. Yeah, and when you look at the high five and the Zach Hyman goal the other night, it's hard to not be a Leafs fan and see that and just think, oh my God, this is awesome. We have Wayne Simmons going into the corner, throwing hits, getting the boys energized, and you can kind of see a, a tangible difference in how the team's playing. As a nerd, I tend to focus on players' five-on-five impact, and when their charts don't look great, I'm wondering wait, are we overvaluing this player? Because for whatever reason, everyone thinks this guy's great, but if the results at 5-on-5 
aren't that great or, or we may be missing something here. But with Wayne Simmons, it's interesting because if you're just assessing his on-ice impact this year, at 5-on-5, five five, I don't think he's been that great. I think in transition sometimes he tends to lose the puck in the neutral zone. And when he plays higher up in the lineup, I think that's a big problem with guys who can make high skill passes and transition up the ice. And then it lands on Simmons' stick and he can't complete that next play. So at 5-on-5, five five, I would argue that maybe he hasn't been as great as we've been discussing this season. But on the power play... He's been fantastic. I remember before his injury, he was leading the league in inner slot chances, rebound chances, deflection chances on the power play. And that was when that top unit was leading the league in all of those categories as well. So, I mean, statistically, he was elite as a net front presence. He still has that ability. At 5-on-5, five five, I think his ability to win puck battles, to get uh, himself to the front of the net, I think all of that has value. But at 5-on-5, five five, I think puck transitioning is something that matters a lot more than it does at five on four. So that might be where a bit of the disconnect is for me on Simmons. But like you mentioned, with a guy like Wayne Simmons, every time I'm evaluating him night to night in the report cards, it's funny because I'm not going to be evaluating him the same way I would evaluate a Mitch Marner or I would evaluate a Morgan Riley or I'm trying to think of another player who I'm focusing on very specific things. When I'm watching William Nylander play, I care about how he's transitioning the puck up the ice because that's what he does. When I'm watching Jake Muzzin play, I'm watching him defend, particularly against the rush and against the cycle because that's what he does. When I'm watching Wayne Simmons, if you're a Leafs fan, what do you ask yourself when you're watching Wayne Simmons? Okay, is he bringing energy on every single shift? Is he finishing his checks in the offensive zone? Is he skating back hard on defense? And is he providing that... I'm try- I can't find the right word. Maybe those intangibles, whatever word you're looking for there, to basically elevate his team's level of play. Because Wayne Simmons individually, I don't think is going to be an impact player for this team. But if he can provide impact to other players by providing that energy on every shift, I think that's something that, even though it's extremely difficult to measure as a nerd, I think it's something you see can have impact on the ice. I'm curious what you guys think about Wayne Simmons, though, because I know he's been a really fun guy to watch in a Leafs uniform this yeah, year. Yeah, I, I mean, for me... And, and maybe this is, is like a, a scarring from past iterations of this team. But like I, I can speak to my own kind of, you know, thoughts on on this like eye test versus analytics thing where I'm definitely more inclined to look at the stats myself as well. But I don't think that I ever fully dismissed the intangible stuff. And it was just be, but I just think that like the Nonis and Burke era of this team overvalued that stuff so much that it made you not like it as much or it just soured me on it like when when, when things like a signing like this like if if this would have been you know uh, the same idea like a you know a guy in his 30s that gets signed on a on a one-year deal that can fight and hit and stuff and it was it was known as doing it i would be i was just in a worse headspace to accept something like that at this time but i think that for me i maybe just swung the pendulum too far i definitely think those things matter um, but I just think that we overvalued them or, or teams have overvalued them for so long that it's soured my perception on it. But I think that, yeah, I mean, looking at what he does when he's on the ice and he's, he's just 100% all the time, that stuff rubs off on guys, I think. Um, Nick, you've said it before, and, and it's probably the best way I've, I've heard somebody explain it. These are human beings. They're not robots. Emotions absolutely kind of come into play and and. Get, seeing a guy like that go to war every night and battle for you is, is only going to bring big things. I think he just has to not be a liability. I, you know, he, he may not give you a net positive impact at five on five, um, but I ultimately I don't think he 
probably settles into that top six role, um, which we'll probably get into later about maybe who, who we bring in to take on that role. But I've been very pleased with him so far. And uh, I'm I'm just happy he's healthy and, and back playing. Well, I think Ian said it best there with like you don't only measure or we can only measure a player's on ice results and impact, but we aren't able to measure the impact that he is having on the rest of his team. And he's when we hear his teammates and the coaching staff talk about what Simmons has brought to this team. Very rarely are they talking about what he's doing on the ice. They're talking about how important he is to the dressing room, what he does to uplift the bench during games. And, you know, it's those emotional aspects and that passion that I think probably drew all of us to hockey initially. So I, I don't think it's fair for anyone to dismiss that just because we can't put it on a chart somehow. And I think it's very apparent when watching this team that they – they all look a little bit taller and a little bit bigger and a little bit louder when Wayne Simmons is around. I don't think that's a coincidence. And I think there's a big difference between paying seven years of term to a David Clarkson for that or giving up big-time assets for a Dave Boland and then offering him a five-by-five <laughs> versus a one-year term of contract for a guy making under yeah. $2 million. I think it's much easier for the fan base to swallow if that's how you're allocating your resources. Well, that's just it, you know, and Keith, you mentioned it, like uh, how the previous regimes kind of overvalued that stuff. And it does kind of wear off a little bit, I think, on you. And, and, you know, I think it's important to remember that, like having a, a really skilled team like this and adding a Wayne Simmons in a you know, a bottom six role is not going to be the end of the world. Like it, it's not the same as adding, you know, Colton Orr and, and Frazier McLaren to your fourth line when you're already a crappy possession team to begin with. Right. Like, yeah. And it's, it's and like to, to kind of extrapolate that to another guy in the roster. Like I kind of had a, you know, a little bit of concern when Zach Bogosian was signed on, but um, you know, that's like, it, it's like you look at what he can do with the puck versus like Roman Polak. And it's like just because, you know, he, he may not be a positive, um, you know, possession guy all the time. It doesn't mean that, you know, he's a, a complete bum like some of the guys the Leafs have had in the past. Right. And and it's it's not the end of the world if you have a guy who's maybe a, a negative possession player, if they bring other things. And if you have the guys in place who are going to drive play in the way that, you know, you need to like I'll take Wayne Simmons um, in this kind of a scenario, given everything else on the roster over like a Dennis Malgin on the fourth line, just to try to juice the Corsi up or whatever a, a little bit more and, and try to be a little bit more of that possession team. And, and maybe you lose some of the identity that, that you feel you need to, to win tight games or win in the playoffs or, or whatever it is. Like, I, I feel like we, we kind of went down that road trying to find those guys to fill roles. And, and um, you know, the, there is kind of that sandpaper element and, and some of the leadership that, that he brings, I think, is important, too. Fun fact, Zach Bogosian and Wayne Simmons, both positive possession players this year on the Leafs. There you go. There now. <laughs> Who'd have thought? Thought I'd throw that in there. I yeah, <laughs> I, I I do. I feel like I just owe Bogosian like an apology every time we record. I, I just I, he he just does something every once in a while that I'm like, oh, that's just a, that's a nice little play that I did not expect Zach Bogosian to make. You know, he pulls those out like once a game. He'll have a highlight reel, and you're just thinking, wait, you can do this? And then he'll turn the puck over on the next play, and you're thinking, oh wait, maybe maybe you can't do this. Yeah, you see every <laughs> once in a while, you see every once in a while, like, oh yeah, you were a third overall pick. Like you actually like there, there's there's yeah. some talent buried in there that doesn't come out to play very often and 
I mean, it's it's hard to get into the kind of the the sandpaper and grit discussion and talk about leadership and and passion for the game and all that without talking about Zach Hyman. And we wanted to talk to you about the the Zach Hyman uh, contract, whatever it ends up being, Ian. And um, I mean, this is a guy who has obviously just grown so much as a Leaf. Um, I mean, to think that he he like he gets some puck carrying duties on this team from time to time. And if you would have told me that back in, you know, the season he was playing uh, alongside Matthews and Brown, uh, you know, the rookie line there, I would not have have thought for a second. Um, But I mean, he's, he's developed into like an all situations guy for the Leafs. And, the scary thing about that is like what what is the cost going to be because we we've always known the motor is there like we know what he brings in terms of energy and and consistency every night but the the point production has gone up over the last few seasons and I mean, he, he's even a guy who, like I said, you know, you, you see carrying the puck through the neutral zone for an easy zone entry and it's like. Like, how do we get from there to here with this guy, and what are we going to have to pay him? Yeah, I was watching the uh, the broadcast. I mean, I watch it every night, but sometimes they'll pull up a graphic from Sport Logic, and you'll see Zach Hyman's zone entry and zone exit numbers are ranked high in the NHL this year. And you're thinking, wait, what? Zach Hyman is elite puck carrier now? What happened? This is the guy who always goes into the corner head first, always dumps it in every single time and chases it himself. Now we're seeing him make more transition plays in the middle of the ice. And that's mainly on that Mikhaev and Engvall line where he's asked to do a bit more. But he's been doing it. That line in over 70 minutes this year, they're north of 60% in expected goals. And most of that is because of Zach Hyman. What's interesting is that Ilya Mikheyev, on most of the lines he's been on this year, has actually been a below 50% player when it comes to controlling shots, chances, and goals. So I think Zach Hyman's been the main driver on that line. You can really see it when they play with him. They look like one of the better third lines in hockey. When they play without him, they look like they're really missing that next gear. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the uh, the Kerfoot-Mikheyev-Engval line. I don't know if Kerfoot's someone we wanted to bring up at any point here just because I know he's been such a, a disappointment for the Leafs coming back in that cadre trade. But getting back to Hyman, I think you asked what his next contract would look like. I mean, if Josh Anderson got $5.5 for seven years, what does Zach Hyman go for in the open market? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, That's... it's scary to think about. And that was an RFA deal, right? Ugh. Yeah. How comfortable? How how comfortable are you guys? Like, if if the option is there to give him longer term to keep the AAV down, knowing that he's a guy that just throws his body around all the time and and did, like those are hard miles that he has on him. I mean, is that would you do that and just kick the problem further down the road? I would be inclined to do that personally. Like this team's in such a cap crunch that, you know, if you can get that number down anyway, if that's adding a couple of years onto the the deal that you would maybe not be comfortable with, like I'm, I'm completely on board with that. The Washington Capitals had this situation with uh, TJ Oshie where they weren't sure if they wanted to resign him or not. And they decided to go with the eight year deal, keep the AAV down. And they ended up winning a cup with TJ Oshie on that contract. Is it going to look great on the back half? Probably not, but again, with the Leafs, I think the argument is that you're in your window right now. You're never going to have a better chance of winning the Stanley Cup than this season. Next season, it looks like we're going back to the Atlantic Division, and that's going to decrease their chances of winning a Cup. But, I mean, you look at this team, as long as Austin Matthews is on the roster, you have a chance to contend for a a Stanley Cup. So, 
I understand the argument behind it, but Nick, I'm curious what your thoughts were. It sounded like you had a, a thought that you wanted to get off your well, chest. Well, it's just, we kind of talked about Hyman before in this sense of, of, you know, is he the guy that you give the extra term to try to get that cap hit down? Because everything w- would lead us to believe that, you know, this is where Hyman wants to be. This is th- the team he grew up cheering for. He basically forced his way here when he was coming into the NHL. And if anyone has earned, anyone on this roster has earned that, you know, extra term or whatever, it's got to be Zach Hyman, the guy who has, you know, laid it out there every single night for this team since he's been here. He's done everything for this team. He is Mr. Everything for this team. He, they can use him on the power play. They can have him killing penalties. He's been a huge driver at five on five, like you said, Ian, and just kind of, you know, carrying the mail for that third line, especially. And, and we know how much of a compliment he is to, to Matthews and Mariner when he's up on that top line. I think that you just, you kind of have to bite that bullet because he's simply not a player they can afford to lose. And I know it, it sounds silly for us to say something like, you know, worry about years five and six or six and seven when they roll around after we, you know, we're just kind of talking about the Clarkson contract for a second but I think this is a different situation and you you have to put that faith in Zach Hyman because he's earned it, I think. And he's just such an important piece of this team. I kind of joked about it before. Like, out of all the guys on this team, when you picture a Stanley Cup celebration, I can't wait to see Zach Hyman carrying around a Stanley Cup in a Leafs jersey just because of what you see this guy do on the ice every night. I think it would just hurt way too much to lose him. At the same time, he turns 29 on June 9th, and with the style that he plays, you have to think that's going to lead to injuries in his 30. I mean, the risk here, its there's a lot of risk if you sign this guy to a long-term contract. The immediate benefit that you'd imagine that you would get in year one, two, and three, you'd imagine it would be really high. But I know when we talk about which players to avoid signing in free agency. We say don't go for those mid-tier guys. Don't go for the guys yeah. in the in the four, five, six million dollar range because those are the Kyle Poso deals that come back to haunt you. You know, uh, Milan Lucic, a power forward in his late twenties. This isn't going to age well. Lad. I just I'm so terrified that as much as I love Zach Hyman right now, that two years from now I'm going to be staring at his cap friendly page trying to find a way to get out of it. Yeah, I think that's fair because he's definitely the type of player that general managers make mistakes on at free agency time. I I see where you're going with that, and I I agree to an extent. Um, The thing that I guess with Hyman is like how many I mean, a lot of those times, obviously, like those those contracts in your like mid late 30s, they they don't look so hot. They don't work out. But I mean, Hyman kind of seems like a different level of beast. And I, and I know that like these are all pro athletes or whatever, but like he just looks like it's the first shift of the night all night. And it, it's just the I feel like that's been a part of obviously what's what's led to him sticking in the league and being so consistent is his conditioning. Like he is, you know, very clearly like a, a, a guy who is in incredible shape. Um, you know, he's cruising around the ice like he he. he it just seems like he adds something every year and he just feels like one of those guys who um, is really a lifer, you know, and it's hard to judge that. But um, I, I just feel like, um, you know, you mentioned to Keith, like 
you can't let him go. I, I just don't know how uh, you get it done is the but thing. But there's got to be a limit, right? Yeah, like everybody's got to have a limit. I, I guess that's the question. What's the limit? So for let's, throw, let's throw a number yeah. on it. Yeah, what's your walkaway point for uh, like AAV yeah. and term? What's your walkaway so for him? So if it's like, let's say that it is like a seven-year deal. He wants to be a leaf for life. That's what we're assuming here. So let's call it seven. I mean, like at that amount, like I... I would not, obviously, I don't know. I would want to go over five, probably, especially with the cap the way it is right now. I think with that kind of term, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be going over 4.5. Like if you're, if you're giving him the, the bonus of that much term and no, he's going to get those paychecks and that salary in those years, yeah. regardless of whether he is still healthy enough to play or not. I think you're you're looking to knock the AAV down a little bit further than five million if you're shelling out that kind of term. I'd probably do five. I'd probably do five, five, five at five. If like if it was a five year deal, that's the most I would do. But then, yeah, if we're gonna go seven eight, then that number needs to be in the low fours for me. What was Darren Drager's latest report on his ass? Oh fuck, who cares? <laughs> I mean, like, we know how negotiations work in this market. This is clearly yeah. a benchmark. <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I mean, yeah, he's uh, like. I guess yeah, five five at five sounds great. I, I think I'd be all over that. Um, I I think that the the problem is like, you know, I, I said like long term, I, I wouldn't want to go over five. It's like, how many other teams are going to be willing to throw that at him? Like, I'd be very I, scared I, to see what the Edmonton Oilers would pay him. The Edmonton Oilers, man, he would be so perfect with either of those seven guys by seven e- easily. Yeah, easily I, seven, I, seven. Like, I could yeah. see them doing it, and, and you know what, like. I'm going to throw it another team because I think Hyman, you know, that's a great role for him playing as like, you know, a a guy on a top line with a really skilled player. He can go in, he can dig, he can carry the puck and kind of do a little bit of everything. New York Rangers, like, I don't know what their cap situation is, but like, I feel like that's a team where they are like their, um, you know, window is coming up a little, maybe sooner than they were thinking it would. And they've got a lot of young talent and like, I think they would be all over a guy like that. And that's a big market too. Like we obviously think that, you know, Hyman wants to be a leaf, but if the Leafs are offering him a full two mil a year less than like the Rangers would be on the same That's hard to say you know, to. Who like that's tough. I guess when it comes down to it, we just really have to hope that he is willing to take less from Toronto because there are going to be teams out there that are more than willing to pay him more than what the Leafs will be able to afford to pay him. I think you're hoping you can get like a 10 or 15% discount there if you're Toronto. Yeah. Yeah, you got to hope you've built up enough goodwill and, uh, you know, he likes what you're building. And I think, I, you know, I, I feel like it, things trend toward it getting done at a, at a reasonable amount, but um, who knows? Who knows? If I had to guess off the top of my head what gets this done, I'm going to say five and a half million over five years. That's just throwing that out. That's based on absolutely nothing. Yeah. We'll revisit it. <laughs> we'll see how close it is. Yeah, a couple months from now. Yeah, we'll put a pin in this. We'll hold you to it. Um, so, it quickly wanted to mention just a, a little news thing. Travis Boyd claimed by uh, Vancouver Canucks, and everyone was saying, oh, Canucks are taking all of our, our guys off waivers. And I thought... Who else did the Canucks take off of waivers? It's over that quick. <laughs> Jimmy VC era, forgotten already. <laughs> 
But another guy we wanted to touch on with with you, Ian, was uh, Jason Spezza, who is like turning back the clock right now uh, with the Leafs. And we were talking about Hyman as a guy who who loves being in Toronto. Um, I mean, y- you can find no no person who wants to be a Leaf more than Jason Spezza, I think, and he's showing it right now. He leads the team in points per 60 at 5-on-5 five five and on the power play. It's completely insane. <laughs> this is a guy making a league minimum contract, and he's on pace for almost 50 points despite playing about 10 minutes a night. That's completely insane here. It's I, I know that he's obviously sheltered and that it helps to have a higher points per 60 if you're being played more offensive situations in fewer minutes. But when you look at his ability to gain the zone on the second power play unit, I mean, I think he does a better job of slicing through a neutral zone trap and gaining the blue line really cleanly just by skating north-south super fast. I think he's more efficient at gaining the zone on the power play than a lot of Toronto's best players. And it, it shows in the results. He's able to set up a lot of uh, primary assists and secondary assists on the power play. Still has that bomb. The fake slap shot wrister off the rush still works for him. We're seeing a lot of these old tricks that he's been doing for 20 years, and they're still working. I'm not sure if I expect him to keep scoring at the rate that he's scoring at right now. Obviously, a bit unsustainable. I don't think he's going to keep outscoring Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews at both even strength and the power play. That would be a bit absurd. But just when you consider the amount of value you're getting there from a player on a league minimum contract, this is why you want homegrown Ontario boys to play for the Toronto Maple Leafs. Because if they're actual productive veterans later in their careers, they can be really helpful to you in terms of outperforming their cap hit, which is how you build a contender. He's probably looked even better this season than he did last season, in my opinion. And like to your point about what kind of value they're getting out of Spezza, aside from just the, the outstanding production that he's provided in limited minutes, look at how important of a face-off guy he's become. Even uh, like on the penalty kill, they'll throw him out there to win a draw, get the clear, get to the bench and get a primary penalty killer on. And he's also another guy that, you know, while he might not bring the same level of physicality or energy that a guy like Simmons does, I think he's been really important to this team off the ice as well, just as that that veteran leader, a guy who's been around and kind of seen it all, kind of done it all. And you don't think that having a guy like Spezza and Simmons and especially a guy like Joe Thornton isn't extra motivation for these guys? Like, How bad do you think that the Austin Matthews and Mitch Mariners and John Tavares want to be the guys that helped Joe Thornton and Jason Spezza get their cups? You know what I mean? There's just so many things that are, are difficult to measure and – Everything that you can measure with Spezza has been off the charts good. I wouldn't be surprised to see him come back again next year with the kind of juice that he showed so far this year. Yeah, it's a lot more value than Patrick Marlowe gave them on that three-year contract. Oh like my goodness! We're talking about veterans coming in, and we're talking about the impact in the room. It turns out you can get that from a guy in the league minimum contract as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and not have to give up first-round picks to get out of the contract. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, you know, while we're talking forwards. Um, Ian, you mentioned Kerfoot a little earlier. I wanted to mention Galchenyuk, too, because I thought he looked pretty good in those first two games. But um, I I guess that the larger discussion there is, like, what's going to happen on that second-line left-wing spot um, with Tavares and Nylander? Um, Is it going to be a trade? Is it going to be, like, an internal thing? Uh, Obviously, they're hoping that Galchenyuk can can catch on there. And I I think he's, you know, had a little bit of of chemistry there. Like, he's looked okay, I think, with Nylander especially. They had a couple of nice moments. But... um, we, we've talked uh, on the last couple of episodes about 
you know the the trade possibilities and it, Ian what do you what do you think that they're going to do with that spot the, the second line left wing like is that going to be a filled by trade or or who do you see eventually settling in there it does sound like it's going to be a trade. I know that Dubas says he's willing to trade a top prospect to acquire a top six forward. And if you look at the players who are available that could potentially fill that slot, we're talking about guys like Taylor Hall, Philip Forsberg. Michael Granlund, I think, would be more of a third-line center spot so that you could get Zach Hyman into your top six. Those are the names that come to mind for me. As much as I like Alex Galchenyuk in terms of his production that he's had throughout his NHL career, what's interesting about him is that per 82 games, he's averaged 47 points a season, Alex Galchenyuk. So I know he has some defensive warts, and I know that there's been a lot of baggage with him throughout his career, but if he's someone that, when this is all said and done, maybe he's on the fourth line with Jason Spezza producing some offense in a sheltered role, I could see that working out well for him. But no, I don't see Galchenyuk being in the top six when we're in game one of the playoffs here. I think realistically... Philip Forsberg's the name that comes to mind for me. We'll see what happens over the next couple weeks, obviously. I know that Dubas doesn't like trading for pure rentals. He hasn't done it in the past. The Jake Muzzin trade is kind of my favorite example of what Dubas likes to do. It was a player who he was going to get not just one year of term, but two years of term so that he could go on two cup runs. It's part of the reason I think Philip Forsberg and Matthias Ekholm are guys that Dubas would ideally want to acquire. Now, you might need to give up Erasmus Sandin or a Nick Robertson in that type of trade, and that's obviously a, a bit tougher to swallow if you're a Leafs fan. But again, we were talking about how this is their best opportunity to win a Stanley Cup. And if you can get a Taylor Hall or a Philip Forsberg or insert player name that you want to trade for right now, is it worth giving up that top prospect? I think when you look at the situation, you look at the fact that on moneypuck.com as of right now, the Leafs have the highest chance to win a Stanley Cup. It's not because the Leafs are the best team in their model. It's because the Leafs have the easiest path to the final, and they're never going to have a path that easy. So I think if, if you ask me who's going to be playing with Tavares and Nylander, it's going to be that player that they trade their top prospect for. If, if I could open up the floor here, I'm curious, what players do you think they should acquire at the deadline? Who's the guy that you have at the top of your list? If, if they're giving up a, uh, the top prospect, like you mentioned, a Sandin or a Robertson, it's, it's pretty much only Forsberg for me. Like, I don't know if I'm comfortable, you know, with one, you know, the rem- the rest of the year of Taylor. As much as I love Taylor Hall, I, I, I don't think they're going to be able to afford him, if you know, in, in free agency. So you're looking at him, you know, here for one run and, and then he's walking. And, and, and to lose a, a Robertson or Sandine for that would hurt. I'm completely comfortable with, with losing one of those two for Philip Forsberg. He's probably the only guy that I would have, uh, you know, in that, that kind of value range. Um, but apart from that, I, I, I think I, I like the idea of Granlin. I, I don't know. I, I, I don't profess to have watched a lot of his career, but just looking at, you know, some of the clips and his numbers, I, he seems like a guy that that could potentially fit in um, all right on that side. But top my list is, is Forsberg. And, and again, especially if we're talking about giving up a lot, it's it's not a very long list. And the big reason with Forsberg is there's two years of term there. That's the biggest yeah. thing is, oh, it's not just one cup totally. run. You get two cup runs out of this. Well, the one kind of fly in the ointment there, Ian, that I wanted to mention was when you get into talking about acquiring a guy with multiple years left, you've got to consider the expansion draft implications of that as well. And j- just what it'll allow the Leafs to protect when that does roll around. If you're adding another forward to the group that, you know, if they trade for a Philip Forsberg, they're not going to leave him unprotected for Seattle to snag away, especially if they pay that high price of a Nick Robertson or a Rodion Amirov or Rasmus Sandin plus. So I think that's something that, the front office is definitely cognizant of and 
you know, like you said, Dubas has always kind of shown he'd prefer to acquire guys with a little bit more team control. But I, I think with, you know, the Seattle draft coming up and all the other, you know, unusual circumstances surrounding this year, I don't know. He he might be forced to look at more of a pure rental guy, like uh, someone like Kyle Palmieri that Cam brought up a few episodes back. I know that there's been rumors that his no trade list basically says Canada, but if he's a guy that would be willing to come to Toronto, he's someone that I would be interested in in looking at. I think he'd be a great fit in the top six. He plays a little bit of a power game, but he he can finish. He he's had a history of being a goal scorer in this league before. I think he would add a lot of juice to that that second line with Tavares and Nylander. It's a matter of maybe convincing him that the the fit is right up here. I like the expansion point you brought up because thinking about it now, you could either go four forwards, four defense, and protect Justin Hall, which is crazy that we're talking about Justin Hall as an asset that the Leafs need to protect when Mike Babcock wouldn't play him for a full season. (laughs) You have to take that into account now if you're looking to acquire someone with multiple years of term. Because then you can't just go four forwards, four defense in the in the expansion. You'd need to protect seven forwards, three D, and one goalie, and that would open up a player like Justin Hall to being available. So when you're thinking about acquiring a Philip Forsberg, so yeah. really you're kind of adding Hall to that trade in a sense if you're exactly. basically convinced that he's going to be the guy that's going. And is that worth it to acquire the better forward, or is it better to just get a slightly worse forward and now we don't have to give up Hall next year? That, that's something you do need to take into account. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of factors to be considered at this trade deadline. It's an interesting one. Yeah, and that's you know that's kind of the the tough thing to balance for for Dubis and almost why I might see him end up you know not going for the 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 high end and maybe it's maybe it's an Eric Stahl or. Um, I mean, Gramland is kind of, you know, kind of in, not quite a high-end guy, I wouldn't say, but um, I, I think I'd like Gramland too. Obviously, a different different role from Stahl, but um, I don't know. I mean, I, Is Gramland a whole lot different than Kerfoot? I know Ian brought him up a little while ago. It, oh, it just feels please. like another guy Come in that on. kind of Well, Maybe it's because I'm a Gramland truther. Maybe I watched him during his prime, and now that I'm watching him at age 29, I need to accept that it's not the same player. <laughs> Well, I don't even want to say that as if he's not better than Kerfoot. I just mean more kind of stylistically. Is he a bit of the same flavor? You know what I mean? A bit of an undersized forward who, you know, has good underlying results, drives play fairly well. All those shot assist numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you're giving up uh, Kerfoot to upgrade to Gramland, I I don't know if that's like, it's like you would almost want to have both options so you can move Gramland onto the wing or, or move Kerfoot up to the wing or whatever kind of combo works and, and out. have the other play three C. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, it gives you options. I'm curious. I, I, I don't know if you guys saw that, uh, that athletic article where, with the, uh, who says no kind of trade scenario things. If, if the cost for Taylor Hall is a first round pick, that's kind of a no brainer. No. I, I mean, I'm curious what you guys think. Is that would you just straight up Taylor Hall for a first? Assuming there's no other major prospect, I don't think it would there? need to be a major. Just going off of again, this is what an NHL GM said. So grain of salt and all that, but it, it was. I mean, if you if you go with that maybe B level prospect, like I don't know if I would do a Rasmus Sandin in a first for half a season of Taylor Hall or a quarter of a season of Taylor Hall in the playoffs. But I would I would definitely. 
yeah, I'd be happy, I think, with a first in that kind of second tier of prospects. The thought of a Taylor Hall, John Tavares, William Nylander second line. It's gross. It's really tantalizing, right? Especially <laughs> yeah. start to get more out of Taylor Hall. His shooting percentage bounces up above 2% and you start to see more of what he <laughs> yeah. actually is. I, I can see Perfect it. Perfect buy low candidate. Yeah, and that's what I like about right? him. It's, it's crazy that a star player is a buy low candidate, but that's kind of the way it is right now with uh, Taylor Hall. But he's got the buy. He's got the, a the recent poor production. MVP. He's got the <laughs> Like yeah. this guy won the heart a few year, years ago. Like this is yeah, I, regression I, candidates here. You know, he's a perfect one. Yeah. Well, you have to wonder how much Kevin Adams is up on the, uh, the regression to the mean sort of thing. Yeah. <laughs> that's the guy, kind of guy that, you know, um, could still kind of provide that, that legit top six production. And maybe you could get him on the cheap a little bit because of the, and you know, it's, it's like you look at Buffalo and it's like, do you take any results? that come out of that place seriously right now yeah because yeah. i i can't i like i it's like oh taylor hall's having a rough year in buffalo it's like welcome to the last decade yeah you could have possibly seen this coming yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah. We're, we're pushing an hour here and we have not mentioned travis dermott hardly one time so here it is everybody yeah. the so now we start hour two <laughs> Uh, (laughs) Ian and I finally get on to chat for the first time, uh, the two of us being huge Dermot truthers. And of course, it has to fall in the middle of maybe one of the roughest stretches of his career. He hasn't been that great the last handful of games. What have you thought of him lately, Ian? Yeah, I try to take notes on every single player during the game. So it's kind of hard. Sometimes a few players get lost in the shuffle. And, you know, you look at the time on ice sheet after the game and Dermot's at eight minutes, nine minutes. 11 minutes 10 minutes it's just it's reached the point where it's, it's it's hard for him to even get into the flow of a game because he's playing a sheltered third pair role where he's not getting power play time he's not getting penalty kill time so he's basically that number six defenseman that the coach doesn't trust in any major situation the reason that me and you have been a I guess believers in him over the last few years is because if you look at his entry defense numbers, if you look at his gap control and and transition, it's just something you can't teach. You can't teach a guy to skate at a guy at the red line, pivot, turn, stay with him and prevent him from gaining the zone. So he's forced to dump it in his ability to skate in the neutral zone is part of the reason I've always believed in him. But one of the frustrating things is that with that skating ability, he hasn't been able to be dynamic at all on the breakout. He hasn't been able to be an effective offensive player in the offensive zone. If you look at the way that the Leafs motion when they're in the offensive zone, they try to get their defensemen activating down the walls, get the forwards in the middle of the ice, try to create all these passing lanes so that the defense can't just collapse into the slot. If, if you're forced to chase guys out on the perimeter, it's going to open up passing lanes through the middle of the ice. With Travis Dermott, you'd think all of his shiftiness and all of his quick turns and all those cool things he can do while he's skating you'd think that would help him create space in the offensive zone but Nick I know you watch a lot of Dermot just like I do he hasn't been a very good offensive player at the NHL level and I find that so frustrating when I see his raw tools yeah and we talked a little bit about it before we even came on to record like when he first came into the league and you saw those attributes like the quick feet and the outstanding edge work and uh, all of that it, it, and even you go back to his first NHL goal you're like holy crap you know this guy m- might have something in the offensive end in the NHL but we just haven't seen it to this point and it, it's kind of strange like you said uh, about you don't see that shiftiness and stuff in the offensive zone because I would argue that when it comes to like defensive zone retrievals on loose pucks and things like that 
Dermot is, of all the Leafs defenders, I think Dermot is perhaps the most elusive at shaking those initial four checkers and, and coming out with clean possession in the defensive zone. And he's great at getting the puck out of his end. His zone exit numbers themselves are great. But once he gets over that defensive blue line, he often skates himself into trouble or... What I find a lot of the time is when Dermot does decide to skate the puck out of his end, it happens to be when the rest of his teammates are changing and he's got no help and he gets to center and dumps it in. And it, again, to your point about you know activating down the walls in the offensive zone and things like that, it almost seems like when Dermot does that, once he gets below the hash marks, he has no idea what he's supposed to do from that point. And he's just racing to get back up high in the zone to, to cover and you know be that responsible presence in defensive transition I still think that there's potential for this guy to be you know kind of a TJ Brody light we've mentioned that before on this show he seems to have all that same skill set TJ Brody's not a, a real dynamic offensive defenseman either but he does a lot of those same things albeit at a higher level that we see Travis Dermott do and I think one of the frustrating things for guys like us who really do appreciate what Dermot does is that it's not always so obvious to the casual observer just what makes him successful and what makes him important to this team. Because yeah, fans in a bar are ooh, definitely going, "Ooh, did you see that first touch on the retrieval?" Ooh, yeah, yeah or, or did you <laughs> see him angle that guy off in the neutral zone and force him to dump it in? Because when Travis Dermot is being successful, nothing is happening. So he's kind of a a low event player at at both ends of the ice. He he doesn't allow much for the opposition. They don't typically generate a ton of chances or clean entries or anything like that when he's out there. And it's reflected in the numbers. He has the lowest expected goals against numbers, which is a good thing. But he also has the lowest expected goal for numbers as a defenseman. It's just kind of nothing happens when this guy's on the ice. The ultimate low event player. like Freddie Gauthier of the defenseman. That's why I think it's hard for some people to maybe appreciate all the things that he he does just because they aren't glaring highlight real plays that that make him effective. But at the same time, this is a guy that the Leafs bet on. They really liked his development from the Marlies to the NHL level. His first rookie season, they loved him there. You had to think that a guy like Dubas is seeing the same things that we're seeing and is thinking, okay, this is someone that I think is going to develop into a legitimate top four defenseman, much like me and you have said on Twitter for years now. It hasn't happened. Why hasn't it happened? It's a good question. Uh, and uh, I think that it's getting to the point where you and I might have to eat this on Twitter a little bit. <laughs> it's like Colin Miller. Sometimes I just look in the mirror and go, you were wrong here, bro. <laughs> uh, yeah, you, you had me sold up the Colin Miller river for sure a few years back. I'm really sorry. I, I <laughs> but, sold you a bill of goods there. I'm really sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I mean, I think um, it, it's so... It's so tough with with a guy like that because, you know, the tools are obvious, but like you mentioned, Ian, like the the sense is there, too. Right. Like you can't just employ that, um, you know, skating ability to, to, you know, uh, shut people down through the neutral zone the way he does without having some strong hockey sense. And it's like he he just seems like such a prime candidate to kind of let go. And then, you know, you're kicking yourself in two years when he puts it together with another team. And I 
I mean, I, obviously the expansion draft weighs into this as well, but um, I just do not want to see him go anywhere. I, I it, it, value How is a part of it too. How would you be if he's doing well in Seattle's top four? If he's like their number three, number four defenseman, he's driving play at a good level. They throw him on the second PK unit. You look up, Dermott's playing 18, 19 minutes a night, a solid five on five hockey, and you're thinking. Crap, this is what we thought he should have been all along, and now he's doing it for another team. Yeah, he goes na- full Nate Schmidt with with Seattle, and we're kicking or ourselves. Or McNabb, or Shea Theodore, all the other guys that they had who were crushing it in third pair minutes, and you move them up into a higher role, and they do well. It's, when the, whenever these third-pairing defensemen, these guys in really sheltered minutes, are just absolutely crushing it in their in those minutes... I like to think it's a good bet because historically we've seen players typically move up into a second pair role and still play pretty well. It's part of the reason I'm high on guys like Vince Dunn. I'm thinking, man, this guy has a lot of talent. You give him more minutes and some better players to play with, eventually he'll figure it out. But then you have guys like Travis Dermott who don't figure out the defensive side of the game 100%. They're not even that dynamic offensively. And then you're left asking yourself, well, what is this? And does it really help us win considering what we could be playing instead of him. I think right now you like Dermott on that third pairing with Zach Bogosian, but that's kind of the ceiling for him on this team right now. I mean, as long as Morgan Riley and TJ Brody and Jake Muzzin are blocking him in the top four, I I don't see any reasonable way for him to move up on this team. I think it would need to be in another uniform if he's going to have success. I think that almost benefits you, right? The way that, you know, he hasn't put it together, hasn't produced because, you know, if he were like, he's, he's done well, you know, in the minutes and, and, you know, against weaker competition, whatever. But, um, you know, if he were really killing it and producing points at like a rate that his, you know, your eye test tells you he should like, you know, when you, when you look at the player, um, if he was putting up like big points, you'd have to do something about it. So it almost works out nicely that like you have this guy who you still have some high hopes for and, you know, he's, he's kind of taken a little bit longer to put it together. So your hand isn't really being forced at least until the expansion draft, I guess. But, um, I feel like that, that kind of benefits you a a little bit and it allows you to have a really strong, uh, blue line unit where, you know, you, you got to guy who's probably performing maybe at a little bit of a higher level on on that third pair yeah i think i think for for me like a lot of what you guys mentioned before about the kind of tantalizing skills that he has and you know he can skate and and he he kind of you know looks good sometimes with that zone exit and the, the transition game and what one of the things that i kind of appreciate about him too is the when he does have the puck and he's coming out of his end, you can see him like kind of going through the progressions. Like he wants to make a play, albeit he doesn't always choose the best option. And and that's kind of burned him a little bit lately, but you, I like to see that though. Like that's like, I want a guy that's, that's trying to make a play instead of just banging it off the glass. And, And when you think about the raw talent that he has, and the the willingness and the kind of want to make the offensive play that makes it even more confusing and frustrating that those offensive numbers are not there it'd be one thing if if he had all this skill and just you know didn't didn't kind of seem look that he was interested in that side of the game but he does look like he wants to make plays but it ultimately it just doesn't happen and i but again that's i think when you come back to the fact that you know he doesn't have a massive amount of, of kind of sample size to work with here. Is he a guy that, you know, could figure it out? He seems like a prime candidate for a guy that could kind of just all of a sudden it clicks and he's, and he's there. So, I mean, 
Yeah, I think that's why you you kind of want to keep him around. And as long as he's not hurting you, um, you're you're kind of fine with him playing that low event role in the third pair. I think realistically, it's either him or Justin Hall that you're going to lose to Seattle. I'm not sure if there's anyone else who comes to mind specifically. But yeah, as much as I am a big fan of Travis Dermott, I'm starting to come to the realization that I don't think it's going to happen for him in Toronto. And if and when he goes to Seattle, I'll be cheering for him. I'll be watching his games and, and paying attention to you know that, that tight gap that he plays in the neutral zone. It's just frustrating to me that this guy that we kind of saw, especially in the early going for him, it looked like there was uh, some, some untapped potential that he was able, could have potentially hit in a Leafs uniform. I, I don't think we're going to see it happen in Toronto. And I find that really sad as someone who, who's been rooting for this guy for a while. Well, I thought he was going to have a chance this year, maybe with, with Hall struggling a little bit without Jake Muzzin last year. But, you know, with the way Hall started this season, it kind of eliminated that possibility with his strong play. And there, there was no need to try Dermot in that spot with the way Hall has been able to play this season. But, you know, on that note, I think, Ian, we've taken up enough of your time tonight, buddy. We really, really appreciate you joining us. Hey, thanks for bringing me on to talk about Travis Dermott and how disappointed I am in him. <laughs> about 10 minutes here. It's been great. <laughs> thanks, buddy. Now, I'm a big fan of your stuff. I've been following Nick on Twitter for a while now, so I always always meant to hop on here and, and debate Travis Dermott with him. So I'm glad we could do it towards the end of Dermott's tenure as a Leaf. It's, it's been great. Oh, it's, it's sad to say that. We, we tucked it away here for you, Ian, so uh, it's, it's just going to be... You know, the, the people who are really, really digging for the Dermot takes. Real ones, no. The real ones stuck around for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, no, again, Ian, I really appreciate you coming on. And uh, I, I don't know if... Uh, I don't know if you were aware that uh, you've been on this podcast for the last hour plus with uh, Real Life Rockstar. Um, we we ended our last episode with uh, Keith, your, your band's new new tune. and uh, But I think you, you released it like the day we put the episode out, so we didn't really talk about it. Um, so because it's a podcast and it's not radio and I can't just like play two songs back to back from the, you know, the same song. I can do whatever I want here. So Keith, tell us about your new song. Uh, yeah. So, um, we have a, a full kind of album coming out May the 1st. We've put out two singles. Now this would be the second one. Um, we recorded the album in September of 2019. Like, I don't even know what year it is anymore. It, we kind of sat on it when the, when the pandemic hit, we didn't really know what to do. You can't play shows. You can't release an album like normal. Um, but we, we've been kind of trickling it out. We put out a single last month, put out the, this single today, the whole album was recorded and, and kind of co-produced with, um, Romish Tavanathan from Hey Rosetta. Um, so he, he's been, uh, kind of taken on the studio uh, role since that, that band put one on kind of an indefinite hiatus. Uh, we recorded the whole album with him, but while we were at idle, um, and not really doing anything, we recorded this song. So this one was kind of done all by members of the group. Um, you know, Pete, our lead singer kind of wrote and arranged it in isolation, sent the files around, uh, Derek and our band mixed it and did all the kind of post-production work. And when we finally hit a kind of public health phase that we could get together, we got together and did the bass and the drums. So it was kind of a real product of its time and, and put together in a way that it, none of the other songs in the album were. Uh, but we were excited about it, so we ended up releasing it as a single. So uh, it's called Aquarius. Um, it's on all the streaming services and all that. Um, there's two singles from the, this new release that are out now, and the rest of them will be out on May 1st. You say that they won't 
Thank you. 